This morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin our reading this morning in Acts 13, verse 13. We'll read through the end of the chapter. It's a pretty lengthy reading, so I hope that you would join me in following along. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we do have the paperback Bibles that are near you. Make sure you grab one of those and follow along with us. Acts chapter 13. Verses 13 through 52, just to give us a little bit of context, we find ourselves in the middle of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. It should rightfully be called the missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul, who have been sent out from Antioch. We'll look at some of the historical details in a moment. But this is where we find ourselves in the midst of the first missionary journey, having been sent out from Antioch, and we now find ourselves in another city called Antioch, in Pisidia. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail for, from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up King David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that is written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people." And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, 
This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he has raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray again that you would open your word to us, give us understanding today, and I pray that you would give us attention. This is a long passage, and there's a lot in it. So I pray that you would gather our attention and our efforts that we would long, like those that we read about here, to hear more. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's an interesting thing in this passage. This is an incredible account of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. It's really the first lengthy sermon that we hear him preach in the book of Acts. We've had this recorded for us by Luke in a number of places. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And we have a number of sermons that are recorded for us during the course of those two volumes. And so... I want to draw our attention to four of these sermons, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Stephen, and the gospel of Paul. All of these recorded by Luke in his two-volume works of the gospel of Luke and Acts. In Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. There in that reading and in his following words, he declares that he brings good news and liberty. Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah who brings the blessings that have been promised through the prophets. Jesus' declaration is he brings good news and liberty. So Jesus fulfills the role of Messiah by bringing good news and liberty to a people in need of rescue. This is Jesus' testimony about himself. You could say this is Jesus' gospel, the good news that he preaches. In Acts chapter 2 then, Peter, he stands up in the midst of Pentecost and he preaches a sermon. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, declares that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Christ is the same word for Messiah. So he is Lord and Messiah and was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that means that the work of Jesus in his execution of the gospel is the work of God himself. That's going to become important in our passage today. We're also told that he was raised and he was seen by many witnesses. Therefore, Peter tells them they must repent and believe in order to receive forgiveness of sins. Friends, that sounds ridiculously similar to the sermon that we just read preached by the Apostle Paul. We'll see that in a moment. In Acts chapter 6, now this is sobering. In Acts chapter 6, we have the record of the sermon of Stephen. Stephen, he recounts the history and promises of the Old Testament. All of Israel's history, he says, is leading to the coming of the righteous one, whom the people and their leaders crucified. And then you know what they did after he bears witness to the same thing that Paul bears witness to and Peter bears witness to and Jesus himself bears witness to? Stephen is stoned to death for declaring how the scriptures are leading to the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, whom they crucified. They stoned him. And you know who was standing there, right? Standing there presiding over Stephen's death? Saul, whom we know in our passage today as Paul, who rips off Stephen's sermon and begins to preach and proclaim that same gospel in our passage this morning for the transformation of wicked hearts like his. You can see why Paul preaches with confidence that there can be conversion, actual change in the hearts of those who hear the word of God because he himself has experienced that change. Paul in Acts chapter 13 recounts the same story. He has himself become a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. It's shocking the the difference between Acts chapter 7, Saul, and Acts chapter 13. What we'll see is Paul himself will so quickly suffer. He himself will suffer and he will ultimately die for the proclamation of this same gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Stephen, the gospel of Paul. You know why? You know why it's so consistent? The same gospel, even though you have these four different preachers with four very different experiences, one of them being the one who experiences the execution of that gospel himself, Jesus Christ, because it's the gospel according to the scriptures. It's the gospel of the word. It's the gospel that's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the whole of the passage this morning. We're going to have to walk very quickly. We're going to make our way all the way through it. But I want to begin by looking at our passage this morning in verse 13, where we see some of the travel narrative. I want us to get some of the context of where this sermon comes from, rather than just completely pulling it out of context to look at it that way. Paul and Barnabas, as I mentioned earlier, they have been sent out of Antioch at the beginning of chapter 13. We looked at that in detail last week as as these five leaders of the church in prayer and fasting and worship, they send out the apostle Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey. Their first stop was on the island of Cyprus, which is just west in the Mediterranean, John Mark was assisting them. You see that back in verse 5 of the passage. John Mark is assisting them. John Mark would become the one who writes the gospel of Mark in his accompanying of the apostle Peter and much of Peter's missionary travel. They traveled, Barnabas and Paul and Mark, across the length of the whole island of Cyprus preaching the gospel. They shared the gospel with a man named Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul of all of Cyprus. And through their pre- though their preaching was opposed by a local magician named Elymas, Sergius believed. And it says that this man, who is a proconsul and a Gentile, was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I would encourage you this morning to, to allow yourself to be astonished by the teaching of the Lord this morning. It is astonishing. Though nothing may be shocking to you in your first hearing of it this morning, it's truly astonishing. It is amazing grace nonetheless. Barnabas has already seen the effectiveness of the preached word along with Paul as they make their way through their missionary journey in Cyprus. Now our passage picks up this morning after Paul and Barnabas travel from Cyprus to Perga, Perga is a town that's on the coast just north of that island. It's on the coast there. And then once they get to Perga, they travel north to Antioch in Pisidia, which is an inland city. Now, let's remember that Antioch is not the same Antioch as the Antioch that, where we saw the church with its five leaders sending out Barnabas and Saul. Now we are in Antioch in Pisidia, an inland city Uh, north of the island of Cyprus. When they get there in verses 15 and 16 in our passage, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue send a message to Barnabas and Saul to come and invite them to speak in the synagogue. Evidently, news of the travels of Barnabas and Saul as they're making their way on this journey, speaking about the Christ, that, that reputation has preceded Barnabas and Saul. And the people are anxious to hear what they have to say. And what follows gives us another glimpse of the early proclamation of the gospel. I would argue that we should pay very careful attention because in this early proclamation of the gospel, we have all of the essential components that the Apostle Paul keeps talking about when he writes his letters, when he says, remember what I said to you at first, right? Don't diverge from what I said to you at first. If someone comes preaching a gospel other than the gospel, than what you heard from me, it is a false gospel. This gospel that we hear this morning is that first gospel. We would do well to pay attention and make sure that we also don't diverge 
from this essential preaching of the gospel. It begins in verse 17 and following with a history of the Messiah, much the same as Stephen did. He gives the history of the Messiah, especially in the Old Testament. Paul is telling the history of redemption that culminates in the coming of the Messiah. He's building an anticipation that comes from the scriptures so that we can recognize the Messiah when he comes. Here's the history. Very quickly, verse 17. God chose Israel and made them great in Egypt, and then he leads them out. It's essential that we see in the beginning of the story, it begins with the will and the work of God. Look at verse 17 again. The God of this people Israel, what? Chose our fathers. It's essential for us to see that the work of salvation, the work of redemption is according to God's own providential will. He chooses it and then he executes it. The gospel salvation is according to the sovereign purpose of God and not the will of man. No Israelite stood up. Abraham did not stand up, raise his hand and say, hey, if there's a God out there, I'd like to be the one that a great nation comes from. And if you would rescue me because I, I'm needing rescue. That's not the disposition of our hearts. So we have all that pride in us, but we do not have the humility to come before our God as a people who are in need of a Savior. This is the work of God. He chose them to lead them out of Egypt as well. In verse 18, it says, God put up with them in the wilderness. How right to say that even as God is working salvation in us, we are prone to grumble in disobedience and waywardness. Does that resonate with anyone in here? Would it be right to say that this is a week in which God put up with your grumbling as though you were in some great wilderness this week? Man, I read the story of the scriptures and I resonate with the rebels over and over again, the grumblers, the wayward. What a grace that God put up with them and he put up with us. And yet there's a warning for us. There's a warning in this that we can't just say, oh, God's so good, he just puts up with my grumbling. Because Hebrews 3, 7 through 8, quoting the scriptures, says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Today, if you hear his voice and you hear him saying, stop your grumbling, I am the Lord your God. Don't say, oh, I'm so glad you put up with my grumbling. Wrong response. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Verse 19 continues the story. God conquered the seven nations in Canaan. He gave them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. This is the promised land that would become known as Israel and given to the sons of Israel and their 12 tribes. In verse 20, we see that God gives them rulers. I hope you're following along with me because we're going through this quickly. I want you to see it in the word. God gives them rulers to govern over them. He knows they're going to need it because he's already seen their grumbling. They're going to need a government that God established. So he gives them judges to lead them through this time. All the way to Samuel, who is a faithful Godly judge, they begin to ask for a king so that they could be like the other nations. And God uses Samuel to appoint King Saul. King Saul walks in disobedience. 
to the Lord. And that's why there is this contrast in verse 21 and verse 22 between Saul and David. We're told that David was a man after God's own heart. In verse 22, it says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he is testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Friends, that doesn't just mean he liked to sing psalms, write them for that matter. It doesn't just mean that he sang to the Lord when he was tending to the sheep. Because it continues. It does not just say that he's a man after my heart. It says, who will do all my will? I'll tell you how you can look and find a man after God's own heart. One who is broken over their own waywardness and striving to walk in the way of the Lord because it's good. God, David is a man after God's own heart because he walked according to the will of the Lord. And when he did not, he repented and turned and he received from the Lord what would come from his hand. Verse 23, we finally come to Jesus. Jesus is the offspring of David, a man who is called a savior. Verse 23 is explicit. Of this man's offspring, speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Verse 23 is explicit. Jesus is the offspring of David. Now, Jesus is actually preceded by another man. You might remember if you read the Gospels, that man's name is John. And John, we know him as John the Baptist. He preached a proclaimed a gospel, a baptism of repentance, calling the people to repent of their sin and to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. In verse 25, it makes explicit that John is not the Messiah. And John, I love his disposition, his humility to point to the Christ and at the same time explicitly say that he is not the Christ, but the one who is to come, he's unworthy to untie that man's sandals. The Messiah is coming, John the Baptist says. Now, I hope that you're becoming familiar with this story. If you're not, read it again. Read Stephen's account. Read Peter's account. Read through the account of the whole of the scriptures. Just spend a year reading through the Old Testament. Rehearse it with a friend over lunch. I'm serious. Actually walk through that story with your children or with your roommate. But I would ask the question, why do the preachers of the gospel keep telling this story. Isn't the gospel all about Jesus? Why are we still talking about David? Isn't the gospel just about how Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose again so that I could be forgiven and live with him forever? Isn't, I mean, do we, can we just ditch the whole Old Testament thing and just talk about maybe what Luke wrote in his gospel? The simple fact is the gospel proclaimers seem to believe that the story of the scriptures is the story of the Messiah. And the history of the Messiah is the history of redemption. It is the bad news and the good news of the gospel. It's the story of our need for a savior. And it's the story of the promise and fulfillment of that salvation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. If this story is the story of redemption, it's the story of our redemption, and there is no other story, and we would do well to know it so that we ourselves can recognize the Messiah when he came. 
that we can see, yes, this is the one to whom the Lord has been bearing witness throughout the whole of the scriptures. This is the Christ, and our redemption would be, would be established in the historicity of the Messiah. For the people redeemed through the gospel, the story of the scriptures has become our story. That's the story of my redemption that was recounted in this passage. So as we celebrate the story of God and his gospel, his story has connected to our story by grace through faith. And that story transforms our disconnected lives into a community of the redeemed. So this isn't just my story. This becomes our story, the history of our redemption as a people. And what we see is, as that passage moves on into verse 26 and following is that the story of redemption becomes explicitly the message of salvation. The message of salvation, Paul states this explicitly. The message that he has been telling and that he is leading to in this message is the message of salvation. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this Salvation, he says. In verse 27, Paul is building the case of salvation found in Jesus alone from the scriptures. At the beginning of his argument is that the condemnation of Jesus, his sentence and crucifixion is foretold in the scriptures. That we wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised that the people sent him to be condemned and that he was crucified and that he would die and that he was buried. Nothing of the events of Jesus' life, death, or resurrection are mere happenstance. But rather, God is executing his divine plan of redemption. Do you remember how the story of redemption begins? God chose. And the revelation of, of, of redemption being laid out through the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures is that God chose that the son would die that he would be betrayed, he would be condemned, and he would die. God is executing his plan of redemption. Again, the events of the gospel are the events of God's sovereign providence. Even the condemnation of Jesus is according to the divine purpose of God. We saw that back when, when Peter preached this in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 23, it says this, Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. You have the human actors and the sovereign God in the same sentence. Do you hear the way that both Peter and Paul bear witness to the gospel of Jesus as the work of God? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus is the work of God, that salvation, redemption is the work of God alone? As we'll see, that means that to oppose the proclamation of the gospel is to oppose the work of God himself. That's why this is such a severe problem for the people who kick Barnabas and Saul out of Antioch and Pisidia. Now, as we come to verses 28 and 29 and 30, we see that there are historical events in the gospel. In verse 28... We see that Jesus is innocent. This is the core historical reality of Jesus' execution of the gospel. Jesus was innocent. 
Stephen calls him the righteous one. Jesus is not a mere man. He was not crucified for his sin. If so, the wrath of God that came down on Jesus was what was coming to Jesus, and it has nothing at all to do with me. It cannot accomplish forgiveness of sin. Jesus was innocent. He's the righteous one. In verse 29, we're told that Jesus died and was buried. He was dead, and he was really dead. (laughs) Verse 30, and God raised Jesus from the dead. That same threefold presentation of who Jesus is is recorded for us also in the Apostles' Creed. If you're familiar with it, you'll recognize these words. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. That's recorded for us in that creed because those are the essential components of the work of Jesus in the gospel. Paul has established the need for the gospel already in his telling of the history of redemption. And now he establishes the execution of the gospel in the person and the work of Jesus. We have the bad news, which is our rebellion and our need for the gospel. And we have the good news, which is God's perfect execution of grace for sinners. What grace that God's perfect works is sufficient to cover our need. We talked about that in the prayer of confession, right? That if we come and we confess our sin and and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, you hear that word in there? We just sort of throw it off. He is faithful and just. He is just to forgive us our sin because Jesus has taken the just punishment in the place of sinners. Jesus, the righteous one, was crucified, but death couldn't hold him. Therefore, sins for which he died have actually been atoned for. I would ask you to sit in that for a second. Is that true? The sins that you confessed in our time of confession just a few moments ago, have those actually been atoned for? Or do you have to atone for them this morning? Do you have to feel just the right kind of guilty? Do you have to make just the right kind of promises this morning to execute your own salvation and righteousness? Or has Jesus worked sufficiently for the forgiveness of your sin? And what does that do for you? What what praise does that create in a people who have been set at liberty because of the grace accomplished by the Christ? Verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Witnesses. Paul established not only the history of the Messiah according to the scriptures, and that's essential because the scriptures are the authority, but he also establishes the historicity of the resurrection through the testimony of many witnesses. Paul himself has become one of those witnesses. So listen, the gospel that Paul preaches is the good news that both the prophets and the apostles bear witness to. We have a sure word of the gospel because they are the fulfillment not only of the promises of the prophets, but of the witness of the eyewitness account of the apostles. 
Well, let's continue to the good news of the scripture. Verse 32 and following. The message of Paul and Barnabas, we're told in verse 32, is good news. Paul wants to firmly establish the gospel he's shared, and he's culminating in the resurrection as in fulfillment of the scriptures. Friends, if we just had a resurrected guy, you would have somebody like Lazarus, for instance, that we have good eyewitness account that Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. But we don't have Old Testament prophets pointing to the resurrection of Lazarus as a fulfillment of the gospel. But that's what we have in Jesus. That's why it's essential that we know the prophets so we can know that Jesus is who he is and that his work did what he said it would do. We have this testimony that's born in these multiple scriptures that are quoted for us by the Apostle Paul to firmly establish the gospel as a fulfillment of the scriptures. We should have seen it coming. It's not enough that Paul, for Paul to establish the resurrection by many witnesses, he has to establish a resurrection by reference to the scriptures. We do the same thing today. It's not enough that we share what is true and good in preaching, in study guides and studies in our homes. It's not enough that we share what's helpful and practical, what's reasonable, what's relevant. These are not our ambitions. We have to share what's attested to by the scriptures. The scriptures are our our authority. The scriptures are how we discover what is right and good, how we discover and test that something is right and good and true. And what we discover is that it turns out that if we'll pay attention to the scriptures There's nothing more practical than knowing our God and what he's revealed of himself in his word. That if we'll actually pay attention to it and cease our striving for little pithy statements by which we can live a better life, we'll discover that there is a far better life to be lived in light of what we discover about God in his scriptures. In verse 33, we have a quote from Psalm 2-7. In that, we have the Messiah being established as the Son of God. Jesus, as as from God, not just from David, from God. In verse 34, we have Isaiah 55, verse 3 being quoted. In that passage, we see the Messiah will receive all the promises that are given to David. So God, of God's own sovereign and providential choosing, chooses to give promises of redemption and a kingdom through David and his descendants. But these promises, they're eternal promises, and that leaves us with a problem because David died. He didn't receive the promises, and his kids, they died, and many of them were a real problem. Paul is beginning to make the argument that the resurrection of the Messiah is utterly necessary for the Messiah to take hold of the eternal kingdom with its eternal promises that are made to David's offspring. And then in verse 35, he makes it explicit with this quote from Psalm 1610, you will not let your holy one see corruption. The psalmist makes the argument explicit. In verse 36, Paul clarifies that it's not possible that David could fulfill the promise because David died. But Jesus is alive. Jesus can take up the eternal kingdom and all of the eternal promises and establish an eternal people. 
by means of the promises of God and the execution of the gospel by means of the work of that Messiah. And then we have a warning. In verse 40, we have this quotation of Habakkuk 1.5. The prophets all of all the people knew that there would be those who scoff at the prophet's teaching, scoff at the promises. And Paul experiences it here as well. Habakkuk 1.5, it's referenced, you look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The argument is that to scoff at the gospel is not to scoff at the claims of human preachers. It says later on that they reviled Paul. They always do. They always scoff and revile the preachers and don't interact with the teaching itself. Why? Because they thought that they they could scoff at the preacher, and by scoffing at the preacher, they're just scoffing at what he had to say. What they didn't understand is to scoff at the proclamation of the gospel is to scoff at the work of God himself. I am doing a work in your days, he says. Do you hear that this morning? Do you scoff at the gospel? Most of you here, you know the gospel. Many of you here, you've heard it many times before. Most of you believe the gospel. But there is a warning for us. Do not scoff. The warning is, is even more sincere for those of us who have heard before, that we would not become so accustomed to the preaching of the gospel that it begins to sound like mere words, the mere words of a preacher, but that we would see. And the reason why we preach the way that we do here at Crosspoint is these are not the words of a preacher. These are the works of the holy God about the righteous one, about holiness and sinfulness and righteousness and waywardness and grace and eternal life. Don't scoff at the things of God. I wonder, when I, when I say that, and I've said it a few times, I, I often think of like the 50 and the 60-year-old. You know, the, the person who's here and they've, they've heard the gospel since they were 20 and they were saved sometime in their college years and, and they've heard it over and over again for 30 years. And the warning here is don't, don't scoff. Don't say I've heard that before. I don't need to continue in grace this morning. But it struck me as I was thinking about this this morning that there are also those here who are 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And you've heard it before as well. Your parents have been faithful to raise you in the church and you've heard the gospel. And you think you've already heard that before. But friends, the gospel is not for your mind alone, for you to be able to spit back at me as if it was a weapon to prove that you've heard it. To spit back at your parents to tell them, do I really need to hear this? Again, it's a gospel to be heard by the heart. Do you know that you're in need of this salvation this morning? I call you, whether you're a a young person, a a teenager, you're 50, 60, 70 years old, it doesn't matter. The call for each one of us is the same. Don't scoff. This is the work of God that he is doing in these days. My prayer for every one of us, especially the youth among us, is that you would hear it. And he would work in your heart this morning. 
and that your heart's cry would be, Lord God, I'm not really sure. I feel like I've heard this before. Maybe there's something that I'm missing. Humble me to hear. I just want to summarize the preaching of the gospel so we would hear it clearly so that we could repeat it faithfully. The gospel is according to the scriptures, first of all. The gospel is forgiveness by faith alone. And to reject the gospel is to reject the work of God. The implication for them and for us is clear. Repent and believe the gospel of salvation, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life in Jesus who is the Messiah. And you know what happens? You know what happens in our passage? In verse 42, it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Now that's good news. When you say gospel, we know what you're talking about. The people want to hear more. I have to ask if the word of the gospel burns in you in this way, do you want to hear more? And that's not a guilt trip. You're like, not really. Kind of thinking about lunch, a little hungry this morning. Friends, all, all that that means is God, let me see your word. Let me, let me go to your word this week and say, God, there must be something in here that I'm missing. Because I know it's more true than my heart believes today. It's not condemnation. It should spark a desire and a movement and a prayerfulness in you if it doesn't burn in your heart in that way. In verse 43, we're told that many follow, Jews and Gentiles, hear and they believe. In verse 43, precious verse. We're told at the end of the verse that they urged them to continue in the grace of God. I so appreciate this encouragement, the urge to continue in the grace of God. Sometimes I wonder, I wonder at the, our insistence at Cross Point Coast to preach the gospel of the grace of God week after week, and day after day. I mean, can't we take just a little break and talk about something else? Can't we consider some other things this morning on this resurrection morning? Yes, yes, yes. But I have other things that are difficult in my life. Can we allow some little bit of conventional wisdom, a little bit of airtime on a Sunday morning or in our households? Can't we let someone who is wise speak their helpful thoughts this morning? The answer is the word of grace must continue among you this morning. The, the wisdom of man is foolishness compared to the gospel of our God. We must remember, and we must not forget. We must understand the story. We have to understand the teachings. We have to understand the gospel, and we have to do so more every day. We must grow in confidence and grow in understanding. We have to hear and heed the warnings. The word of God has an effect in the passage. I hope it's having effect among us this morning, even if it's the simple effect of God, why does this not affect me? Why have I not gone to seek you during the course of my week? The effect in our passage is both a growing church and a growing conflict. The story of Acts is a story of the advancement of the word among the nations. It's a story of God's witness faithfully proclaiming the word. It's a story of, of power, the power of God for those who he has appointed for eternal life. We're told that the whole city gathered together. Almost the whole city 
of Antioch and Pisidia. Don't tell me the gospel isn't interesting. It caught their attention. The gospel is boring if it's unintelligible, if it's old news. The preacher is either preaching it wrong or our hearts aren't hearing it right. The church is growing. And it's growing as Barnabas and Saul speak boldly the gospel of Jesus. And in the midst of that growing church, there's also a growing conflict. Even as the Gentiles believe there are some Jews who continue in the ways of their fathers who so often rejected the message of the prophets. And Paul and Barnabas were faithful to in the instruction of Jesus to bring the gospel to the Jews, but they're also faithful to the instruction of Jesus to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Both believe, some out from among them both. In verse 47, it's God who has made the Jews a light to the Gentiles. The fact that the Gentiles believe is God's idea. It's not a plan B. It's been his plan for the people of Israel the whole time. In 49, we're told that the, we're told that the word of the Lord is spreading. Luke, the author of Acts, is establishing that the gospel that Barnabas and Paul are preaching is the same word that has been spreading from the mouths of the other apostles. I know especially in the day in which we live, often the letters of Paul are called into question. It's one of the reasons why when I, when I preach through the letters of Paul, I don't like to talk about Paul a lot, because they're the letters of the Holy Spirit to the churches. They're the inspired word of God handed down to us from one generation to another. But Luke is being very careful to say they are written by a man named Paul and the gospel of the apostle Paul is the gospel of the apostles. It's the witness of Jesus Christ and it's in accordance with the scriptures. We can have confidence in the whole of the scriptures that we read. At the end of the passage, they shook the dust off their feet This isn't the last time, even in their first journey, that they'll experience serious opposition and suffering, and they'll continue. Meanwhile, in the midst of it all, verse 52, we're told that the church rejoiced. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Friends, I would close with three questions for us from this passage. It's a lot. It's too long of a text for one morning. I hope that you'll go back to it, that you'll spend time with it this week with your community groups, with your households. I would ask you to ask three questions as you do so. Do you know the gospel? Do you search out the scriptures and listen intently to their proclamation? Or as you read, do you have this little voice in the back of your head that says, I know this already. I just kind of have to do this as a spiritual exercise. Do you suppose that you already have enough of the knowledge of God and his grace? If so, hear this morning's passage as a severe indictment. Your mind may be able to recount the knowledge of God, but the pride and waywardness of your heart must be confronted with the grace of God daily, as in today, if you hear his voice. Secondly, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you can't save yourself? Do you understand that the gospel is the work of God from the beginning to the end, that you can't add to the work of Jesus, you cannot clean yourself up in order to come before God? God has already come to us, and it's his work to make us holy by the cleansing work of Jesus 
Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sin. So the only response necessary or possible is to repent of your sin and unbelief and trust in the grace of God. Friends, this morning, as I've offered this encouragement over and over again, if this morning, if your heart is wayward or inattentive or unimpressed by the gospel, to to go and to search out the scriptures. But friends, you don't have to obey that command before you humble yourself before the Lord and say, even before I, I go and pursue you this week, I know I need you. I believe the gospel this morning, even as my heart is so wayward that I'm unimpressed. Lastly, do you continue on in the grace of God? Continue on. This afternoon and tomorrow and in the coming week with the people that are around you, Do you surround yourself with people who will preach the gospel to you when you wander off after sin or self-righteousness? Do you continue on in the grace of God or have you moved on from the gospel to something more? Friends, there is nothing more. The gospel is about the eternal kingdom of the Son and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Eternal. There's nothing more than the gospel because the gospel is is sufficient for us. Heavenly Father, we confess our need for you this morning. We confess our our dullness, our proneness to pay much greater attention to much lesser things. Thank you for this authoritative, so clear of an account of your gospel that there is no excuse for us not to hear and to believe. Lord, I pray for every one of our hearts, the ways that we've become callous to your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us to to pursue you this week, that the first order of business is humility, that even in these next moments in communion and song, that you would humble our hearts to be impressed at least that you have so worked that people like ourselves might be saved. Thank you, Lord. We trust in you. We trust in the work of your gospel. We confess it is your work alone. And so would you work among us this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Messiah. Amen.